Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. BetOnline is your number one source for all odds, stats, trends, and lines. With everything from point spreads to hundreds of bets on everything from the coin toss to the color of Gatorade, BetOnline is the number one source for your championship wagering. Head to BetOnline and join today to get in on all the action. BetOnline, where the game starts. All right, folks, this is Jeremy Evans, your host of the California Sports Lawyer Podcast, where we talk about entertainment, media, and sports topics. And every once in a while, we interview somebody really amazing and uh, very cool when we can get them to uh, to join the show. And uh, so this is for episode seven of season six. And we have today Dr. Chris Matman, who is uh, an amazing individual, somebody who has been uh, in the spotlight with regard to artificial intelligence for quite some time. And we have the pleasure of serving together on the uh, California Lawyers Association Task Force on uh, Artificial Intelligence. Uh, Chris is definitely um, one of the experts in this space, and I want to turn it over to Chris to um, kind of introduce himself a little bit, talk a little bit about his background, and then we'll get into some of the specifics of artificial intelligence and some of the things that uh, we can look forward to and maybe some of the things that uh, we need to be prepared for and and uh and that sort of thing so chris please take it away jeremy thanks so much for having me on the show brother i really appreciate it and uh hi to everyone in the audience um i'm chris matman uh so basically you might know me if you've done work in the technical field or big data field um or if you've seen the intersection of sports and technology and you kind of operate in that space i i've had a 23-year career um, I worked at NASA uh, as the chief technology officer and innovation officer for a number of years. I um, also have several outside consultancies in practice, including a company I developed called Matman AI, uh, which is providing AI technical services and consulting, um, as well as a company called the Sporting Tribune, which is focused on Los Angeles, Las Vegas, and Hawaii uh, media. I grew up in Southern California. I uh, grew up in a town called Santa Clarita, um, which is if if you're on the West Coast and, you know, you you might remember m mostly because it has Six Flags Magic Mountain there. It's where the West Coast Six Flag is. But uh, when I grew up there, they that's all they had. They didn't even have a mall. Um, I spent a lot of time basically looking up at the sky and thinking about what I wanted to do with myself. I wish I could have played sports, but I never grew uh, past 5'9 and about 160 pounds, although I weigh more than that now. <laughs> but uh, yeah, when I uh, realized that I wasn't going to play football professionally or even at USC, which was my alma mater and dream school, I uh, I started investing in my mind. And um, I grew up in a trailer in, in Santa Clarita, California. Uh, you know, I had a lot of love in my family, um, but didn't have a lot of money. My parents, um, my mother was schizophrenic and in and out of the hospital. So my grandmother helped raise my brother and I. And uh, after my dad lost his business, uh, it was a really tough time for us. And so I was the first in my family, my direct family, to go to college. I went to USC, couldn't afford it, but really wanted to go there after seeing all the fight on and, 
you know, USC, I'd won a Rose Bowl in 1997. And so I had gone to a couple of the games with my friend's mother. And yeah, anyways, I decided USC was the place to go. And since I couldn't do it in athletics, I started doing it in computers and computer science. And um, so I had a lot of imposter syndrome at USC. Uh, you know, my mother or father wasn't a senator or some congressperson or whatever. And um, yeah, but just put my put my head down and started working hard. I had a lot of luck along the way. A lot of nice and good things happened to me. I got involved in a lot of things, including open source. Um, I became on the board of the Apache Software Foundation, which is where all the big data software was produced. I helped to invent and produce a number of the technologies, mostly all of the technologies that power today's internet and big data platforms. I like to tell people if you've ever searched for anything, clicked on anything on the internet, if you've ever done a financial transaction, most likely it's using code where my name is in the change log. And um, just finally, you know, um, that was sort of the first couple decades of my career. I did a lot of work with the Department of Defense and helping to invest in uh, in technologies that would analyze and process data. The culmination of that was basically helping to develop and invest in a technology called Tika, which is what the journalists use to analyze and expose financial corruption around the world and to publish the Panama Papers, which won the Pulitzer Prize in 2017. And yeah, my last six or seven years have been in information technology as a deputy CTO and and then eventually the CTO at NASA JPL. So yeah, I'm very, very excited to be here talking sports and AI and tech with you, brother. No, well, I appreciate you and um, your background. You know, some of the stuff that you were saying, I didn't even realize and even more impressive. And, and you know, again, appreciate you and your time. You know, on the AI piece, I think that there is sort of this thought process out there, particularly in the legal field, but even beyond the legal field of being excited about it, but then also like being scared and not knowing sort of what to do. But it was funny. I was doing a presentation yesterday at, um, at CAA to their lawyers, and it was all about uh, AI and the law and sort of how it might affect the business, right, with entertainment and sports. But even beyond that, it's, it's sort of funny. There was this um, – and what in the presentation, there was this sort of screen that was put up that showed – you know, obviously the innovations that we've had over the last 100 years, right? So, you know, when you move from, or I say 150 years, you move from, let's say, you know, a wagon to, you know, a car, right? Or, you know, from a horse to a wagon to a car or something like that to an airplane, clearly that's going to change jobs and change sort of interest in things. And technology has the ability to do that. But maybe could you walk us through from your perspective as to, whether should we should be scared about AI or whether we should embrace it. Yeah, it's it's hard. I mean, you and I have talked about this before. A good analogy, too, is like the Pasadena 110 freeway. Anyone that's ever come to Southern California, you know, flown into LAX or Burbank, but driven from the airport to, you know, the northeast LA mountains of San Gabriel, you've driven you've driven across the you've driven across the 110, the 110 freeway. And this was a freeway where, you know, people say my wife calls it the crazy freeway, but you you come up to the entrance to it and you've got to go from zero to 60 instantaneously because, you know, the cars are all flying down it and, you know, it's windy and whatever, but the entrances give you no on-ramp. And, and part of that was technology change, right? The cars that they had back then when they built it, it was the first, you know, the first interstate, first freeway really ever built was that 110. Well, they were going from cars whose max speed at the time was between 30 to 40 miles an hour 
to now this same freeway is powering today's cars, right? They go over hundred miles an hour. So that shift and technology change and really job change is, is kind of what you're talking about with respect to AI. My perspective on it is that I don't, I don't think, I don't think we should be afraid of it at all. Um, I think we need to understand AI's boundaries. Um, ultimately, I think we need to understand, you know, how AI works and part of understanding how it works will teach us how best to use it. And so, you know, you and I talk a, a, a lot about this, Jeremy, but part of understanding how it works is, is understanding, okay, what's going on and, and what's the shift in this. And, you know, it's thankful you had me out as CLA president to speak at the California Lawyers um, Association annual meeting last September. And basically I talked about this, you know, AI, there have been three fundamental shifts. The first shift is the capacious amount of cloud computing processing and storage, which, you know, before you're not doing all this on your laptop anymore. You're doing this on big elastic computers that you pay by the drink for and that are used to train really, really big models. And they're run by all the big internet companies. So computing isn't an issue anymore to do the things that we only dreamed about in AI. The second, and I talked a little bit about this in my background when you asked me to introduce myself, is just the infinite supply of data that's out there on the internet, you know, from social media data to multimodal data, not just text, but images, video, audio. But the challenge with that data is that it needs to be refined. It needs to go through a refinement process, just like crude oil does to gasoline. And, and really there are technologies and companies and things now that are doing that. They're taking that crude infinite supply of data and they're making it highly structured tabular data like Excel spreadsheets rows and columns, because that's what AI needs, modern AI. And so because that exists in the last decade, people have been able to turn the crank on AI models. And we know a lot about biology, neuroscience over the last 50 years. We know how the eye works. We know how the ear works. Heck, we know how the nose works and the olfactory system and senses and touch. So these models exist and they're the foundation of modern smart vehicles for computer vision, right? Your Teslas and all that. They're the foundation of Google Homes and series and assisted devices to speak and have them understand us in text. They're the foundation of natural language processing and natural language conversation like ChatGPT. And with all of those things in understanding them, you understand AI. And if you understand AI, you know how those can be immensely powerful tools to help us. But like you said, we also have to understand their limitations, bias, what data were they trained on and to relate back to your CAA thing. You know, actors, are we are we voice scanning actors? Are we scanning them physically? You know, hey, how does this impact writing? Did they ingest all the scripts? You know, how did, how are they, can it write in Oppenheimer or is it just focused on writing, you know, corny Saturday morning cartoons? You know, those are, so bias, ethics, how the predictions are happening. You know, what's the confidence in those predictions? Those are all the questions that we need to ask, but we also really need to understand AI. Yeah, no, and I appreciate you sharing that. And I, you know, some of the things like, for example, there was this great article in Hollywood Reporter two days ago talking about um, dubbing in films, like where, like to say, you you know, you you produce a film in English, but then you want to sort of send it around the world. And one of the major terms in, in deals is, which people don't really talk about, it's really in post-production is what happens to that film when it wants to be displayed in Germany or in Poland or in China. And then obviously sometimes some of the issues that come up is, well, you know, like in China, for example, maybe they don't want certain content that goes out to um, sort of to, to its its people, right? 
And so there's always this sort of artist freedom versus, you know, government control issue, particularly in that part of the world. But then the other issue is, is, is the film going to be dubbed from, let's say, language, or is it just going to have subtitles, right? Obviously, the easier way to do it is subtitles, but even there, there's controversy. But anyway, long story short is that there was this invention uh, that is now uh, coming out, and it's uh, based in Saudi Arabia. And the idea is, is that this AI can essentially translate and dub films and sports broadcasters in a hundred different languages within seconds. And not only that, it can do it with the nuances and with the exact meaning of the word uh, of what somebody is trying to say. So imagine watching a broadcast in, you know, Mexico and, you know, folks always love the, um, uh, the announcers, particularly of, of, uh, in Latin America or with a Spanish background, it seems to be, you know, very popular, uh, particularly in the soccer world. And wouldn't that be kind of cool to listen to those announcers, but in English, on some sense, it's kind of scary. Uh, and then I had made this comment too in, in my podcast um, uh, this week, or I guess last week, was this idea that uh, it's fascinating because you might be watching that and then it might kind of seem surreal. You're like, wait a second, this person is speaking to me in English, but normally it wouldn't be that way. Uh, and then, of course, the two things that got brought up from that is, okay, well, number one, you have to get licensing from the talent to approve of this for their name, image, and likeness. And then the second is, or some sort of waiver. And the second is dis a disclaimer on the television or uh, you know, basically saying, you know, hey, this is the work of AI. I guess two two questions. One is, what are your thoughts on that specific piece? And then secondly, what are your thoughts on sort of like, an AI bill of rights. And, and I know we've talked about that and sort of with the idea of being humans always being at the top and humans always being in control versus uh, another scenario. So I guess it's like comparing the use of Jarvis in Iron Man to let's say the Terminator. And obviously we want, maybe we want the, um, the former option, but even then Jarvis kind of took over the world for a period of time. Anyway, I'd, hey, love, to sure hear, yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, yeah, Ultron, right? That was, yeah. you know, and I hear he's making here he's making a comeback. Um, yeah, you know, I, I mean, I have a couple of thoughts. So first, you know, an issue of sort of Hollywood and and scanning and and actors' voices, and really a, a really key use case, which is related to translation and dubbing. You know, like Roblox, there was an article came out around the same time as that Hollywood reporter reporter article. But yeah, Roblox is now offering basically in chat. Roblox is a kid's game, a virtual worlds. It's a metaverse game. They're killing it right now. And they just basically released a feature where kids can speak in 10 different languages and it'll translate back and forth, you know, between the source and the destination language using AI. So now kids all across the world, even if you don't speak Chinese or if you don't speak, you know, Spanish, but you speak English and things like that, they can chat with one another using this AI feature, very similar concept to things like dubbing. You know, this is really understanding the auditory system, which since deep speech was invented by Baidu in 2014 has been what people have been focused on in sort of sound-based to text AI models. And, you know, the things I think about related to that are that technology is here. I'm sure, you know, will that reduce headcount in the dubbing industry and think potentially but also, will those people whose jobs are not necessarily replaced, but maybe made better by AI, have different things to do or more focus? Absolutely. Like, as an example, like, 
there are things that even AI doesn't get great. They, when they initially released, um, you know, Siri and things like that, um, when they initially released things like Google Home, it didn't really understand British people too well. And that's because the UK has several like just very thick and different accents that the source data wasn't trained on. And so it didn't do too well. Like it, it didn't understand them well. It got the words wrong. And so they spent, you know, curators and people who formerly would do language translation, they leveraged those people for 10 years to basically get it right, to provide curated, you know, oh, no, it meant this. And so their job became a little bit more meaningful and less monotonous and things like that when that happens. So sometimes like there can be a positive story out of things like this. Commenting secondly, too, on understanding watermarking and what's generated by AI you know, to your point, you, you kind of need to understand that. And so people are thinking of putting, you know, in the titles or putting in the credits, like you said, this was this part was done by AI. I think that's absolutely necessary. So watermarking and understanding what was created by humans as it relates to things like, you know, copyright and other things is a, is a critical way. It's a critical thing to understand intellectual property, but also just the creative process. Um, and so we can't ignore when AI generates things because that needs to be a flag that we capture. And that's what a lot of people are focused on, not just in sound and things, but also today in things like generating videos and imagery, like you really need to know when something was generated by AI and there were tools being developed by Google and OpenAI to basically auto, auto watermark new content. Now, now, I just had an opinion piece in the New York Times in which you know myself and a colleague, Jacob Shapiro at Princeton University argued, you need to focus on the past too, because AI is coming for the past. It's not just the future and everything that all the new content you know, riots, political discourse, you know, upheavals, uprisings, they're sometimes basically incited by things that people read from the past or don't understand. You know, you could have someone come back and fake evidence about the Armenian genocide and say it didn't happen, right? And so you need to be focused on the past too. And so watermarking the past is also, to your point, you know, you talk about people's attention and where it needs to be focused. I think there needs to be a lot of focus on that too. And then finally, I'll just say, you know, yeah, you know, and put in a plug as part of our um, task force, our AI task force, you know, with the CLA kind of going forward, these are some of the things that we're going to be thinking about. You know, these are some of the areas in the law and in practice and things that, you know, we need to kind of have a deep focus on. Um, and, and I think watermarking is just one of the tools. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and I appreciate you sharing that. And I would love if you could, as we've got just a little bit of time left, looking at uh, maybe some of the things that you're working on and some of the classes that you'll be teaching and, and ways for folks to, to follow you and, and to get a hold of you. And then if we have a little bit of time, maybe one or two more questions. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so, so some of the stuff, I mean, obviously Jeremy and I are going to continue to work this CLA AI task force. We're meeting quarterly. We're going to produce a set of recommendations for the CLA and for the law in California, but also benchmark and look at other States and things like that. So watch for, outputs from that. Jeremy just put out a press release. It's great. The CLA did that. And um, please kind of keep, you know, paying attention to that. I'm also doing a lot of law and AI things right now, both with Jeremy and other partners. I have a partner, Charles Liu, who he and I have talked to about the AI Bill of Rights to Jeremy's last latter question that I didn't touch on. I'll just touch on it now. Absolutely. There needs to be an AI Bill of Rights, you know, and, and people like Jeremy and Charles are leading the way there in kind of thinking about that. Um, and so I also have a class I've been working on creating as a repeatable module in the law, um, basically called Legal Prompt Engineer. And we just taught that at uh, Loyola Law School. It was pretty successful for the first one. 
Charles and I and uh, Casper, who's a professor at Loyola Law. And we also spun out a company related to that to continue offering legal prompt engineering training for lawyers. So you understand how to talk to these AI, how to generate prompts. I mean, half of the, the issue that people have or are going to have, Jeremy, as well, is you don't just talk to these new AIs like you would type Google searches. You got to know, you know, what types of things to type into it. And, you know, if you're dealing with imagery, like in the vein of Picasso, if you're debating, you know, basically trying to get the best ideas, you can tell the AI to pretend, you know, debate this issue like you're Sherlock Holmes and Watson and then come out with the best day. So you need to know how to prompt, how to really unlock the power of it with prompts. And in the law, you need, if you're gonna do, um, if you're gonna do basically, uh, you know, contract law, if you're gonna do entertainment law, if you're gonna help with wrongful evictions and things like that, you need to know the types of things that you as lawyers, powerful lawyers, we need to understand your process and we need to put that into the prompts for how these things are sort of handled. If you do unlawful detainers all the time, you have a way of doing things and we need to unlock that for the law. And that's what some of the legal prompt engineering is doing. And then finally, um, I, I teach all, I teach every, every spring at USC. I teach a class in data science at scale in the graduate school in Viterbi there at the University of Southern California. So those are some of the places you can find me uh, and continuing to work with uh, also Jeremy on the Rose Bowl board, which I'm so proud to be a member of. Yeah, no, you and me both, my friend. Um, so we've got about five minutes left, and I appreciate you talking about the Bill of Rights uh, issue there and some of the other things that you're working on. You know, I guess what are some ways that folks can like become knowledgeable in AI and maybe become more comfortable with it? And maybe to start that, maybe let's just sort of talk about some of the things that we already use AI for. You know, so like one of the things that comes to mind is, you know, if you're watching Netflix or you're listening to Spotify, they're already using AI to measure your likes and dislikes and to say, hey, you know, you like this music, you should, you know, we're going to suggest this or to create a playlist. It's all done with AI. In many ways, AI, I kind of compare it to like Moneyball, the movie Moneyball with Brad Pitt playing um, Billy Bean with the Oakland A's. And this idea that you're taking all of this knowledge that normally you would use, you know, for analytics and you would use computers or calculators to determine outcomes for players and then, you know, basically draft or, you know, put, you know, players in positions for that specific purpose. So it's AI in my mind is taking all of that, but it's collective knowledge and, in, and it's doing it in an immediate sense. So the question then becomes, as a lawyer once told me when I was at this New York uh, conference in, um, on the metaverse, and it, the lawyer said, he was actually from Italy, and he said, the question or concern is not going to be, you know, whether somebody's going to use AI. The difference is going to be the lawyers and people who use AI and those who don't, and what strategic advantage that they have. So maybe some comments on that uh, before we close out uh, as to kind of what AI is already out there and maybe what people can kind of look forward to or or uh, be, be aware of. 100%. And, and the analogy I'll just add is you can dig a big hole with a spoon or you can use a shovel. And either way, you're going to dig the hole and it's just going to have different outcomes and different properties along the way. And and I think lawyers are going to need to use AI. I liken it to the shovel, right? And not that you know all lawyers were digging with a spoon before, but this shovel is very powerful and it's not something that you can ignore. It's something that when you're preparing legal, I'll give you another analogy. When you're preparing legal documents, if you use Microsoft Word, just as an example, Microsoft Word already is including AI 
it's auto completing your sentences just like Gmail doesn't and it's already learning from the text that you put in too. A powerful GPT-like model is being included in Microsoft 365 and Word and is already part of Google Docs and everything else. And so the tools that you use to write, which is a core, I mean, words are the law, right? And they're core tenant. And so you will use, no one will be able to escape AI. And so I think just in terms of double clicking and understanding on it, you don't want to stick your head in the sand. You don't want to dig that shovel with a spoon. You don't want to dig that hole with a spoon. You want to use the shovel and you need to understand basically how to use it. And you can be different shovel users, different, you know, different hole diggers. Um, you might use a shovel to dig a few different holes. You might use it to dig one really big hole. So, so my basically advice is don't stick your head in the sand for AI, basically become educated, take some of these, you know, online courses. And there aren't that many in the law yet for MCLE and others, but things are being developed, but also talk to, you know, talk to the lawyers like Jeremy and others and Charles who are embracing some of these things. And it doesn't mean ignore others in your practice or, or anything, but you just need to basically be searching out for knowledge on how to use it and educating yourself. It's not, you don't need an advanced math degree to understand some of this. It's being made very accessible and arguably that's the reason that so many people are interested in it. You don't need to be someone at Google to use it nowadays. Anyone can. Right. No, and I appreciate that, Chris. And I think that's a great place to to end there. And, you know, oddly enough, um, one of the great experiences that uh, Chris and I had was we got to go up to LA and I think the group was called uh, Proto or Pronto. It was Proto where we got to do the whole- Proto. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and we got to basically get in there and do, we had Chris do a virtual presentation, um, as a hologram, uh, to the New York state bar association in a, in a joint conference. So he did the, the recording in Los Angeles, but he appeared as a hologram in, uh, New York. So fantastic. And Dr. Matman, always a pleasure, brother. Appreciate you being on. And, um, Enjoy the rest of your day, and, and I'll look forward to uh, chatting soon. Thanks so much, Jeremy. I look forward to being on again in the future, and uh, thanks and appreciate everyone in the audience. All right. Thank you, everybody. We'll be back soon. Thanks again. This episode has been brought to you by Bet Online. Thank you so much for listening in and making us the number one rated entertainment, media, and sports law podcast in the world. Thanks again.